Well, this morning I would like for you to, uh, uh, if you would, open your Bibles as I've got mine open here to the prophecy of Malachi. The prophecy of Malachi. Now that's the last book in the Old Testament, isn't it? The prophecy of Malachi. I don't know if it's been a while since you read uh, the book of Malachi or not, but uh, it's a tremendous short book in the Old Testament. Uh, the very last book of the Old Testament. And it's, as I was, I was thinking about this as I read through Malachi the last couple of days, and it, it appears to almost be a compendium of all that we find in the Word of God. It's, it's like a collection, briefly, you know, a summary or something of all that God's Word is about. Uh, and, and so I want to read some verses this morning toward the end of Malachi. Then we're going to go back and, and talk about uh, a few things here in, in Malachi uh, before we really get into uh, what's on my heart here this morning. But if you would, look with me in the third chapter. There's just four chapters, and it's a rather, very short book. Uh, the fourth chapter, as a matter of fact, has only six verses to it. But listen as I begin reading in verse 16 of chapter 3, if you would. Verse 16 of chapter 3. And if you're, uh, what's Justin call this uh, headings up here? Pericope. Pericope. (laughs) That was a new word to me. But you know, you'll find sections of your Bible broken down into sections and it'll have kind of a title above different sections and all. Well, section... Uh, beginning with verse 16 in chapter 3, is the book of remembrance. And that really caught my attention as, what is this weekend? This is Memorial Weekend, isn't it? Memorial Day weekend. And uh, this book of remembrance caught my attention. And it was interesting that the Lord directed me to this portion of Scripture on this particular weekend. Uh, Now, Memorial Day is a day to remember what? Those who have given their lives in service of our country. And we are thankful for them. And we want to never forget them. We want to remember them. But much greater than that is our need to remember the one who gave his life to redeem us and save us from our sin. Uh, We need to have a, a memorial day every day of our lives, don't we? As believers, as Christians. Never forgetting who He is, and what He's done for us. Well, let's look in verse 16 and following of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers 
will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves of the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that word destruction is a Hebrew term that is rendered uh, decree of utter destruction and it refers to things devoted or set apart by the Lord, devoted by Him for destruction. My, what God is saying here. What God is saying here. Well, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, there, there are things here that I confess to you, I acknowledge before you as well as before God, I am not capable of making clear all that's here. But my sufficiency is not of me. My sufficiency is of the Lord. If God is so pleased, He can take His Word, make it real to us, and teach us all this morning the things that He would have us to know and understand from this portion of Scripture. And so you pray with me, if you would, that God would enable me that God would give me a degree of liberty, that God would uh, grant me an unction from on high, an empowering of His Spirit, and that God would grant you a heart to hear and understand as well as me. So bow with me in prayer, would you please? Our dear and gracious Father, once again, as we bow before You on this Lord's Day morning, we come now, Lord, with Your Word the Word of the living God, the Word of eternal God, we come with it open before us, having read this portion of Scripture, Lord, that, that speaks to us of things that are so very important. We pray, Father, that it might please You to speak directly to each of our hearts here this morning. Oh, Father, I pray that You would enable me Enable me to, to bring before these folks that which you've, I believe, placed upon my heart and, and the things that you would have me re relate to them as we spend this time together on this Lord's Day. So, Father, honor your name. Glorify your name. Exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus, the only Savior from sin. And, Father... Give us eyes to see and hearts to understand these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This book 
this short prophecy of Malachi's very interesting book. I would encourage you, perhaps even today before the day is over, to go back and read the entirety of this, uh, this short prophecy, all four chapters, and uh, soak up, soak up, soak into your heart, soak into your soul the things that God is speaking here through the prophet Malachi so many years ago. This, this prophecy of Malachi was written probably sometime uh, in the, well, 500 years before Christ, perhaps. It is believed that it was written following uh, the rebuilding of the temple by uh, uh, Haggai and Zechariah that they, they, they talked about in their prophecies. Uh, written following that. Uh, and when the children of Israel returned out of captivity in Babylon, as they had at this particular time, they just assumed that because God was returning them back to the promised land and enabling them to, to rebuild the temple and, and all of that, that the Messiah would be present, that He would come, and that He would deliver them from all of their enemies. And things would be well from that time on. And when God didn't do it, they were discouraged. They were discouraged. And what is it that happens so often when we get discouraged about things? We tend to take our eyes off the Lord, don't we? We tend to forget who God is. We tend to forget what God has spoken and what God would have us to understand and remember that He has spoken to us. And that's exactly what many of them did after having been returned to Jerusalem uh, following the captivity in Babylon. And uh, Haggai, Malachi is writing here to call attention to how they had drifted away and forgotten the Lord, who He was and all. And his message was primarily to the priests who uh, were offering polluted offerings unto the Lord and uh, and. Uh, and so the Lord, through the prophet Malachi, rebukes the priests. And uh, he speaks then to Judah as a people, uh, how they had uh, profaned the covenant that God had made in, in forgetting and not being faithful to the things that God had said. And then the prophet Malachi relates how that God wanted him to know that he was going to send a messenger. A messenger. And by the way, uh, the word Malachi, I believe, means messenger. Messenger. And uh, it's interesting here that Malachi, the messenger, uh, uses this uh, terminology in his prophecy. It's found in chapter 3 where he says, Behold, I send my messenger. This is God speaking through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger. And we know, as we get on into the New Testament, who that was, don't we? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He was sent to prepare the way of the Lord, wasn't he? He was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what it says here. Behold, I will send, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, that's not John the Baptist. That's Jesus. That's Messiah. That's the Christ the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And he, the messenger of the covenant, 
Why is Jesus called the messenger of the covenant? What did Jesus come doing? Do you remember? As he began this ministry, what was he doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Saying, repent and believe the gospel. That's what he was doing. That was, what, that was Jesus' primary activity in the three years that he walked upon the face of the earth. Proclaiming the good news. Proclaiming the gospel uh, about who he was and what he was sent by the Father into this world to do. Uh, and so uh, we find in the prophecy of Malachi this prophecy of the salvation that God promised through the Messiah actually going to come about. But uh, the Jews at this time, uh, they had forgotten the promise. They had lost sight of it because of the discouragement and all. Well, what I want to do this morning is, if I could, take the things, some, some of the things that uh, we read as our text here this morning from chapter 3 and chapter 4, and consider what is really being said as Malachi brings his brief prophecy to conclusion here as the Lord was directing him to speak, and as he did and as it has been recorded for us and we have for our reading and for our benefit even today. If you remember, he began in verse 16 by saying, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now, who are these folks? that uh, feared the Lord. Uh, If we go back uh, to the very first of this prophecy, if we could. Uh, By the way, let me just just share with you something before we even even look at this. Years ago, several years ago, I believe uh, when Justin was just a baby, when he lived in Mountain View, I forget just how old he was there before we moved to Montana. Uh, But God directed my attention to a series of sermons by by a man by the name of Al Martin. And that series of messages that I listened to, God used tremendously in my heart and in my life. Al Martin brought a series of messages. I believe there was a total of seven messages on the subject of the fear of God. The fear of God. Now, Ken and Sue have been around me long enough to know that they've heard me talk about the fear of God uh, often, uh, make reference to it. It had such an impact upon my life, and it continues to have an impact upon my my life. And, and it did so much so at the time that uh, I even borrowed heavily from Al Martin and preached much of what I found in those seven messages that I heard so many years ago. And I continually keep coming back to these things and the importance of them. And, and the, one of the things that struck me as I began years ago to listen to these messages on the fear of God was how that in times past, long time ago, even before I was born, in reading some of the, the, the Puritans, in reading some of the, the old saints, uh, you would often hear them refer to the, to the fear of God, wouldn't you? And rightfully so. Rightfully so. Because it is, believe it or not, one of the more predominant themes in all of God's Word. If I remember correctly, there are something like 150 direct 
references to the fear of God in Scripture. And it had an impact upon my heart and my life. And uh, it is a predominant theme. And, and I began to think back when I was a child. So often I would hear one of my grandparents, especially my grandmother Walker, uh, I would hear her talking about some godly saint and she would refer to him as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. And I began to think, I don't hear that anymore. I don't hear that anymore. I don't hear people referred to as God-fearing people. How sad. How sad that is. Because it's all throughout the Scripture. The passages that we read at the beginning of our time here together, Psalm 2, serve the Lord with what? With fear. Serve the Lord with fear. What did Peter say? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on the Father who without respect to persons judges every man according to his work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. In fear. Oh, it's just, we could go on and on, couldn't we? It's all in the Scripture. But it's almost as if people have cut that out of their Bible anymore. Or taken a, a permanent marker and, and written over it so that they don't read it. And it's not there. It's not before them. And, and that's tragic. Tragic. Perhaps you remember the Apostle Paul as he is writing his letter to the church at Rome, the third chapter. And we've, we've talked about this several times in the past. In, in the third chapter of, of Romans. Well, let, just turn there quickly with me, if you would. Romans chapter 3. Uh, Paul is, is almost painting a portrait. He's almost painting a picture, if you will, uh, that portrays for us what the unregenerate man is like. And in Romans chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse uh, 10... Paul says, as it is written, now this is not anything new that the Apostle Paul is about to say, is it? As a matter of fact, the very first part of it is a quote from Psalm 14, from the Old Testament. But he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace have they not known. What a picture. What a picture that is of lost, depraved, unregenerate man. Every one of us. Every one of us. That is my portrait when I came into this world. That is a picture of every unregenerate individual. Anyone who's ever been born in the flesh into this world, into this life, that is a perfect picture of them. Why is it? 
Why is it that they are that way? Why is it that I was that way? Look at the next verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Al Martin illustrated it like this. He said, if you were to go out into the bright sunshine of day like today, and if you were to look directly at the sun for just a little bit, and you couldn't do it for long, but if you did and you took your eyes off of it, everything else you looked at for just a few minutes would have spots on it, wouldn't it? Spots before, there would be spots before your eyes. Well, that's what he's saying here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Men do not look at life and the things around them with God superimposed upon them. God is not taken into consideration at all. Not at all. Now, when we read the word fear in, in the Scripture, in the Bible, uh, there are really two ways in which that word fear is used. One of them, uh, Al Martin described this, I read it in others, uh, John Bunyan, I believe, uh, John Murray, others have used the same uh, way of, of talking about the fear of God. Two types of fear in the Scripture. One of them is a fear of dread and terror. A fear of dread and terror. That's the kind of fear that I used to have when I was a young boy living out in the country in southern Missouri. And we lived up the road about a half a mile from my grandparents' house. And uh, uh, there, there were those times after dark that I, I would have to walk down to my grandparents' house. And you know how I walked? I walked with a rock in both hands just scared to death that something was going to jump out of the woods on this side or that side in front of me. And I walked literally with a rock in both hands. That's the fear of dread and terror. I was scared. I was scared. Is there a reason to fear God that way? There is. And we'll see that here in Malachi. We'll see that in Malachi if God enables us to get that far here this morning. That there's a reason because... Not only does God begin the book of Malachi by talking about how greatly He loves His people, He concludes it by talking about how that those who do not repent will face an eternal fire and destruction forever. That's reason to fear God. But, here as we read this portrait of sinful, depraved man, unregenerate man, we see that obviously he has no fear of dread and terror. Has no fear of dread and terror. Because he, just like the psalmist says in the 14th Psalm, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He puts God out of mind. Out of mind. The book of Romans begins with Paul saying that creation itself is enough to reveal who God is, that He exists, that He is the Creator, and yet men ignore that, don't they? They shove God out of the picture. They forget God. They forget God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And therefore, there's no dread and terror of God. But the other kind of fear that we find in the Scripture is the fear of reverence. The fear of reverence and respect that that grips our hearts when we look and see God and how awesome He is 
and it makes us want to fall down before him like those seraphim that Isaiah saw when God revealed himself in Isaiah 6 and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, his sinless perfection, a fear of reverence and respect and a sense of awe. This is the kind of fear that uh, is found in the scripture, a fear of dread and terror and the fear of reverence or respect or that of being in awe of God. And our text here this morning said what? Began with, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Uh, What does that say? God has a book. God has a book. And in it are recorded the names of those who fear Him. Those who not fear Him with dread and terror, but those who fear Him with a deep sense of reverence and respect and and, and a sense of awe at the greatness and the holiness of this God of Scripture. Ah. Well, if we go back to the very first uh, of the prophecy of Malachi, uh, after Malachi opening with verse 1, saying the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, what does he say? I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. God is talking about a people here that he said he has love upon from before the foundation of the world from before the foundation of the world. And should there be any doubt as to whether or not God has done that, uh, the Scripture is explicitly clear in that respect. Uh, We read in the prophecy of Jeremiah that God spoke through Jeremiah and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. An everlasting love. An eternal love. A love that was before time began. A love that before there was ever anything created. A love before you or any other human being ever set foot upon the face of this earth. God had His great redemptive love set upon a people. A people. Now the Scripture calls them His elect, doesn't it? Calls them His elect. Now the the professing church today, sadly to say, doesn't like that word. Doesn't like that word at all. Because they feel if God has an elect, if God has a people that He set His love upon and didn't set His love upon some others the same way, then that makes Him unjust and unfair. Not at all. Not at all. It has nothing to do with the justice of God because if it's justice that we want from God, we'd all perish. We'd all perish in our sin and go straight to hell and get exactly what Malachi says, God says here toward the end of his prophecy. But God has a people that he's loved with an everlasting love. And it it says, they ask ask him then, well, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I want to tell you what, folks. There are those that would like us to think that, uh, well, yes, 
God loved Jacob. But when it says here that he hated Esau, it doesn't mean that he hated him. It just means he, he loved him less than he did Jacob. That's not what it means at all. Not what it means at all. God hated Jacob. Or not Jacob, but Esau. God hated Esau. Uh, and he loved Jacob. And it wasn't because Jacob was a righteous person that he loved him. It had nothing to do with what he was. It had everything to do with God's mere good pleasure. He set his love upon a certain people, and Jacob happened to be one of those. And Esau was not. And if God were just, he would have hated all of us. He would have hated all of us. Not set his love upon any. Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9, I believe it is. There's what if God willing to show His wrath endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath fitted for mercy in order that He might show His grace and His mercy upon those basically whom He's loved from before the foundation world in contrast to show His grace and His mercy. Uh, well, the prophecy of Isaiah clearly speaks to us of God's Sovereign grace in the salvation of unworthy sinners. God sovereignly saves a people. Uh, we don't know who they are, do we? We don't know who they are. Therefore, we pray for all of them. Therefore, we proclaim the gospel to all men, knowing that God will use His Word as He pleases to bring unto Himself and to saving faith those whom He has set His love upon before the foundation of the world. Well, who's going to believe? Who's going to believe? Well, Acts chapter 13, verse 48 says, all who were ordained to eternal life believe. All who were ordained to eternal life. But I got to thinking about this. I got to thinking about what God says here as He begins the prophecy of Malachi, uh, talking about the great love that He has for His people and then how he ends his prophecy uh, in chapter 4 by saying, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then he concludes. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, God is going to do such a work that uh, men will repent and family relationships will once again be restored to what God intended them to be when He created man. And, and I tell you what, we see in our day and time, don't we? We see in our day and time families that are just, a lot of them have no love for one another at all. No concern. You know, children can't wait to get up and grow up and get out of the home and be gone and, and hardly ever come back and, and see their folks at all. And brothers, well... You know what I'm talking about. Sad, sad picture. And if there's not such repentance in the hearts of men, 
He says, I'll come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Utter destruction. But those who fear the Lord will not be destroyed. Will not be destroyed. What is it that brings about this fear that the prophet Malachi is talking about? Uh, You know, we read at the beginning of Malachi there that Jacob was one that God loved. Well, Jacob was not worthy of God's love. That's not why God loved him. As a matter of fact, uh, Jacob was a, a scoundrel. He was a downright scoundrel. He, he deceived his father, made his father believe that he was Esau. You see, Jacob's father loved Esau the best, and Jacob's mother loved Jacob the best. And Jacob's mother wanted Jacob to have what rightfully belonged to Esau. And so she concocted this way of, of Jacob going into his father Isaac and deceiving him. And he did. And because of it, Isaac blessed Jacob with the blessing that should have rightfully gone to Esau. Well, Esau came along a little bit later. And when he found out what had happened, his heart was broken. His heart was broken. And he said, rightfully is his name Jacob. Rightfully is he called Jacob because Jacob literally means he cheated. He cheated. Jacob was a a schemer. He was a conniver. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. Uh, That was his life. That was all his life. And yet, God loved him. God loved him. What is it that brought about the difference? What, what what, What was it in Jacob? Wasn't anything in Jacob. Until God put something in Jacob. A little bit later... Because Jacob's mother was now fearful that Esau would uh, seek to do him harm because of how he had deceived him. And all he, she told him, you've got to go back to, to where my, my brother lives and, uh, and get away from Esau. You know, go, get away from Esau. And so Jacob went. And on the way, he uh, grew weary. And of a night, he lay down to rest. Do you remember what happened? Laid his head upon a pillow, and he dreamed, didn't he? He dreamed. His dream was of what? A ladder reaching from earth to heaven, and the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. Uh, a reference to you know communion that was available with God, and all. And Jacob awoke from his sleep, and and I mean to tell you what, fear had gripped his heart. He says, surely God is in this place. Surely God is in this place. I didn't know it. But God is here. God is here. And the awesomeness of the presence of God gripped Jacob's heart. His life was changed. Oh, there was still room for for God to work, just like there's always room in our hearts for God to work. But God on that occasion put something in Jacob's heart that made all the difference in his life. What was it? The fear of God. The fear of God. You see, 
nobody is going to fear God. Just like we saw the portrait that the Apostle Paul was painting of unregenerate man. No fear of dread and terror even of God, much less no fear of reverence and respect and standing in awe of God in natural man. Doesn't have the capacity to even recognize God, to know God. Oh, but God will do a work, won't He? God will do a work. In just the next couple of minutes, we'll begin to wrap this up. But I want to point out to you where the Scripture makes it very clear to us where this fear comes from and how it becomes a reality in anyone's heart and life. Uh, It is a distinct and clear gift bestowed in the covenant of God's grace. In the covenant of grace. Often referred to as the new covenant. In the scripture, new in comparison to the old covenant as it was given through the law there on Sinai to Moses. Uh, That was the old covenant. The new covenant is actually the everlasting covenant. It's the covenant of God's grace uh, made in heaven between of the triune Godhead where God had set His love upon a people and determined to redeem them from their sin. And and the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, agreed to do everything that was necessary to secure the salvation of those whom God set His love upon. And the Spirit of God would enter into this covenant as well to make application to hearts and lives uh, that which... Christ would do on their behalf to save them. But we read about this new covenant back uh, in one of the other prophets, the prophecy of Jeremiah. If you want to turn there for just a moment with me. And this is something that obviously we don't have time to get into as much as I would really like to have this morning. But, But perhaps just bringing this to a conclusion by pointing out what the origin of godly fear is in the New Covenant here will help us to understand uh, that it is God who makes the difference and God who brings about the change. If we look in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 32, chapter 32, we could go back to chapter 31 and we could see much the same thing, but it's so much clearer here in respect to what we're talking about here this morning, the fear of God being in someone's heart and life. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, begin with verse 37. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them i will make with them an everlasting covenant that i will not turn away from doing them good now listen closely and i will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me i will rejoice in doing them good 
and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. What then is the origin of the fear of God? The covenant of God's grace, God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to put the fear of God in their hearts. Now, it is not in our old natural heart that God places this fear because it's corrupt. The fear of God is holy fear. Holy fear. God is not going to put holy fear in a depraved, sinful heart. And so what has to happen? Well, look at Ezekiel chapter 36 with me. Ezekiel chapter 36. We find Ezekiel the prophet talking about this same covenant, this same covenant of grace. In Ezekiel chapter 36. Well, let's begin with... uh, with verse, uh, oh, 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, for which, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit here is on one occasion referred to as the spirit of the fear of God. The spirit of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord. That in which God deposits His holy fear is the new heart that Ezekiel prophesies of here. That's where God puts His fear. And what is this but regeneration? This is regeneration. Remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, John chapter 3? He says, Nicodemus, except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You won't understand. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you receive a new heart, a new life, you can't even understand the things of God. You can't see God. You can't know God. You can't understand God unless you have a new heart. Unless you're born from above, born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says a little bit later, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, but if you are, If you are. My fear. My fear. The fear of me will be deposited into this new heart. This new life that you're given. And then. And then we recall that Solomon in the Proverbs says. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? 2 Timothy chapter 3. From a child you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you what? Wise unto salvation. Wisdom. Where does that wisdom come from? The fear of God. The fear of God that God puts in the heart. Puts in the heart. Well, here in our text this morning in Malachi, let me read it again at the conclusion. It says, Those who feared the Lord, verse 16 of chapter 3, spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. All of those who fear the Lord. That book of remembrance was already written, wasn't it? Their name was already in it. Long before they ever came to fear God, long before they ever received a new heart in which the fear of God could be deposited, their name was already recorded. God had ordained that it come to pass. Their name was already written in the book. He says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Peter talked about that, didn't he? First Peter chapter 2, where he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of my own possession that you should show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Praise Him because He did what had to be done in my heart and in my life. Oh, but what, what awaits those who never fear the Lord? What awaits those who never fear the Lord? The day is coming. Chapter 4 begins burning like an oven when all of the arrogant, arrogant, that's those who say they don't need the Lord. We'll not have this man to reign over us. That's the arrogant, the prideful, the arrogant. All the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Oh, what a dreadful day is coming. For those who, due to a lack of godly fear, never repent. Never repent of their sin and flee to Christ in faith, trusting Him. Well, this fear of God is a subject that we need to come back to often. We need to understand it more thoroughly, more fully. The fear of God is made up, Al Martin said, of... of some necessary things. It's made up of a correct concept of God's character. The fear of God enables us to know something about who God really is and what God is really like. It's made up of this correct or right concept or understanding of who God is and what He's like. It's also uh, made up of a pervasive sense of God's presence, a realization that we can't flee from the presence of God. Uh, R.C. Sproul often referred to how the Christian is to live his life as being quorum Deo in the Latin. A quorum Deo, that means before the face of God. That's the way we live our lives, before the face of God. God's presence is always there. And then thirdly, 
The fear of God is made up of this constraining awareness of our obligation to Him, to love Him supremely, trust Him completely, and obey Him implicitly. That's the fear of God that God puts in our hearts. What did He say there in Jeremiah 32? I will put my fear in their hearts, the fear of me in their hearts, and they will not depart from me. It's that that God puts in the new heart that He gives us that keeps us and secures us. We belong to Him. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Praise God. Praise God for the fear that He puts in our hearts. May we live our lives in reverence, in respect, in awe, in awe of who God is and what He's done for sinners like us. Let's pray.